Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to the readout. It is election night 2023 and polls are just closing in Kentucky and Virginia. And within the next hour, polls will also close in Ohio, Mississippi and Rhode Island. Across the country, voters will give us a sense of what they're thinking and feeling on key issues. First up, Ohio voters will weigh two major political issues. Issue one is whether Ohioans have a constitutional right to abortion and other forms of reproductive health care. And issue two would legalize recreational marijuana. Abortion access also looms large in Virginia, where control of the General Assembly is on the line. Those state legislative races will determine if Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin can pass abortion restrictions in a state that overwhelmingly supports abortion access. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, we will find out if voters believe that incumbent Democratic Governor Andy Beshear has successfully sold his personal brand as distinct from his national party. He's being challenged by the state's attorney general, David Cameron, infamous among many for dismissing all but minor charges in the police killing of Breonna Taylor. He's a politician groomed by Senator Mitch McConnell and endorsed by Donald Trump. And at 8 p.m. Eastern, polls will close in the mayoral races in Houston and in Philadelphia, which will likely elect its first woman mayor. For the latest on Kentucky and the other important races we're watching, let's head over to the Cornaxter, Steve Cornacki, at the big board where he belongs. Steve, what's happening? Well, so 7 o'clock means polls in all of Kentucky are now closed. It's a split time zone state, so that's why you see nothing in yet from the western part of the state. That's, a ch- that's changing just as we speak. Now, the key in Kentucky that we've been explaining is there about 15 to 20 percent of the votes that are going to be cast statewide are going to be early votes, and that's what gets counted up first. And the early votes, just based on what we've got from the state in terms of the partisan makeup of the early vote, is that it's more more Democratic than the overall statewide electorate, meaning that the first big batch of votes in just about every county we see is going to be the best it gets for Bashir in that county. And then the question is, how far is he going to fall? And what we're doing basically as these results come in is we're just going to compare where he ends up county by county to where he was when he won this in 2019. And the key is in 2019, he barely won the governorship. The margin was just about 5,000 votes, four-tenths of 1%. So it means county by county, he needs to basically be at the level he got in 2019. He really has no margin for error from that level. So we are starting to get a few counties. They're small, but they're ticking up towards 100% of the vote counted. For instance, Taylor County, a small county here, but they got 94% of the vote in. And you see Daniel Cameron, the Republican, running at uh, 59.2, Bashir running at 40.8%. And I can tell you, in 2019, Bashir got 37% in this county. Uh, We'll see the final 6% come in, but that's what he wants to see in any given county. If the number lands above 37 
in this county. That's good news for Bashir. That's one of the counties that we've got a lot of the vote in from. Another one that's getting close to complete here, about 85 percent, is Elliott County. This is a county that Bashir actually won uh, in 2019. He got 59 percent of the vote here in 2019. We will see as the rest of this vote comes in to small county if it ticks up further. But that's what we're looking for trends as these counties complete. There aren't that many that are close to complete yet at this point. What we do have and why Bashir is so far ahead statewide right now is that the two by far biggest counties in the state, this is Jefferson County where Louisville is, 20 percent of all the votes in the state of Kentucky are going to come out of Jefferson County. And then Fayette County, where Lexington is, close to 10 percent are going to come out of there. They've their core Democratic counties. And we've got the early vote from there. So it's sort of the best of the best for Bashir from what are going to be his strongest and biggest counties. And they really account for that big lead you see in terms of the statewide margin right now. But again, we want to see in those counties as the as the rest of the vote comes in in those counties, we want to see how close he gets. Is he at or above his 2019 level? The other key place we're looking are these three counties right here. These are right outside of Cincinnati. They together account for about uh, 20, about 10 percent, I should say, uh, of the statewide vote. And you can just tick right down. You start here in Boone, uh, Boone County. Now, Bashir got 41.5% of the vote here in 2019. Currently, he's sitting at 47.5%. Let's see how far it falls down. One of the keys to Bashir's victory in 2019 was these two counties, which right now are blue. Uh, he won in 2019. These are went Republican in the presidential election. These are sort of suburban Cincinnati counties. He won them both in 2019. You see Kenton County. This is where Covington is. Uh, Bashir, 61-39 right now. Uh, he won this with about... 49 and a half, 50 percent of the vote last time around. And he got about 51 and a half percent in Campbell, a third of the vote. And he's running at 65. So, again, as these these are sort of the best numbers he's going to get in these places. But as the rest of the vote comes in, that's something we're keeping an eye on. Is he holding on to those two counties in suburban Cincinnati that he won narrowly? Um and then the other part of the story is a lot of small rural counties throughout the state. You can see a lot of empty space here that are going to come in. Individually, they're small. Collectively, they're significant. And they're expected to give Cameron big margins. And we'll see if those margins are enough for him to offset from these core Democratic areas, what we already see Bashir getting. Again, about 20 percent of the vote in statewide in Kentucky right now. That's the lead for Bashir. But again, keep in mind. We got early votes from the two core Democratic counties and just about all these counties. He's at his high watermark right now. He's got his khakis on and he's ready to party. Steve Kornacki, uh, wave your arms. Just do the, you know, do the arm wave. If anything comes in that uh, we need to know and we will break back in and we'll come right back to you. Thank you, my friend. You got it. Much Thanks. appreciated. OK, Steve, we'll be back um, either way with another update. Uh, on the as the polls close in Ohio as well. And join me now is Connie Schultz, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist and author of the Hopefully Yours newsletter on Substack. Michael Steele, former RNC chair, MSNBC political analyst and host of the Michael Steele podcast. And Basil Smeichel, Democratic strategist and director of the public policy program at Hunter College. And you're at the table with me, so I'm going to come to you first, Basil. What do you see going on there in Kentucky? Because it looks right now, per the great Steve Kornacki, that uh, the current governor is 
overperforming, at least with like a small percentage of that vote in, in the counties that he needs to. How is it looking? What do you think? I, no, I think it looks very good for him. I'm sort of happy about that as I look across the country, because as you're right with the tease at the beginning, that abortion's on the ballot, uh, uh, voter suppression is on the ballot. All of these really key issues that are hopefully going to mobilize voters in, in 2024. Interestingly enough, it is not being discussed, but it's something I've been talking a lot about today, our elections in New York. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Because there are a couple of city council seats that where the Republicans are actually competitive over issues like the migrant crisis and a host of other economic issues that are a little concerning to me because what, what, I, what I've been hearing from a lot of voters African-American and Latino voters, particularly those from the city that moved to the suburbs, mm-hmm. that a lot of these issues are actually top of mind for them. Yeah. And there's a movement towards Trump. So my concern is, as, as, as Steve is reporting and as I look at elections today, what are the suburbs looking like? Yeah. Because there are some folks that now think they have a little more wiggle room, Republicans mm-hmm. that feel they have a little more wiggle room in New York. Yeah. And that's dangerous. And that's dangerous. And, you know, Michael Steele, what is, if there's an interesting point here in that Kentucky um, has set aside one of the issues that in the past has been the most divisive and dangerous for Democrats, which is health care. Because, of course, Andy Bashir and his father were very wise about the way they expanded Obamacare or what is called Connect in Kentucky. Yeah. So health care is actually not an issue on the table. They've expanded Medicaid. So they're relatively well off in that area. And the issue that's most divisive in that race is what Daniel Cameron did. And for black voters who are not a huge percentage of the Kentucky electorate, that is a, a, an issue that is a no for them. So he can't use the fact that he's African-American to his advantage in a state like Kentucky. And there's not something like an abortion ballot on to help him. But Andy Bashir has family name, pretty gold family name in Kentucky. And he's got an issue where it's his opponent that seems the most divisive. What do you think? Well, I, I think that's uh, exactly right. And, and the question, you know, when you when you lay out a scenario like that or, or the condition of, of an election like uh, we see in Kentucky is how are voters digesting this? And it really goes to what Basil just put his finger on. There's a lot of hoopla around big stuff, bright, shining objects on election night. Um, but what you and, and Basil are both pointing out is that there are some more subtleties that we need to pay attention to that could be better indicators of where the country may be leaning, where the country may be assessing uh, not just uh, the race in front of them, but a broader question about the direction of the country, how they feel about the economy and other things. So a city council race in New York where Republicans are competitive, um, a county race in Kentucky where Democrats are competitive, those things begin to add up and matter. And and so what the great Steve Kornacki is going to be peeling back is going to be what what do those numbers say? What Mm -hmm. do those races look like as an indicator uh, of what's going on? So Bashir got name, he's got family, he's got pedigree. But on the substance of the issues uh, to what Steve has laid out, Voters may be, you know, yeah, I kind of like what the governor's done, right? And so I don't, I think we need to be careful in what we, you know, take away from these elections in mm-hmm. terms of as a final say of where the, the electorate is, because we're a year out from 2024, right? Yeah. We'll be doing this a year from now on election night in 2024, but at least we get a little peek uh, into how voters are looking at these elections. And I think that can be an important guide, especially for Democrats yeah. who, in my humble opinion, have fumbled the ball 
on messaging uh, and yet may still be saved by uh, the, the electorate because of the performance of governors like Bashir. But, and, you know, incumbency, you didn't mention, but is also a thing that's important that we have to factor in that's here. It. We'll see if that works in Mississippi, though, because uh, Elvis's kin is on the ballot <laughs> there. And that, to me, I, and look, I'm being I'm being facetious, but it actually kind of matters um, that Brandon Presley is a Presley and that he's got credibility. He's a very, very conservative Democrat. So there's no way for them to tag him as some sort of, you know, liberal. And so that's it. We're going to come back to that. But Connie, I want to bring you in because Ohio to me seems super important as sort of a litmus test for how intense the abortion issue remains for the electorate, both Republican, independent and Democrat. Let me play you the closing arguments from both sides in Ohio. Take a listen. Issue one would allow an abortion at any time during a pregnancy. And it would deny parents the right to be involved when their daughter is making the most important decision of her life. Here in Ohio, the state is trying to ban abortion, even in cases of rape. When I hear that, all I can think of is, what if it's my daughter? That's why I'm voting yes on one, to stop government from passing these extreme abortion bans. Connie, how do you, how's this looking in Ohio? Well... You know, they can still vote for, I'm looking at my clock, it's 7-12, mm-hmm. polls close at 7-30. Anybody who's still in line, please vote. Um, we don't want to discourage anybody from doing it. I'm very optimistic, I have to say. Early voting is higher than it was in August. And you know what happened in August with issue one. At that time, they had to vote no. Mm-hmm. This time, they have to vote yes. All these different ways around this. And uh, it looks like voter turnout will exceed August. Uh, this is tentative, right? We're st- I'm getting. I keep looking at my phone as you all were talking <laughs> because I people sending me numbers. Um, I've been optimistic about this all along. However, if it did, if this does not pass, all it means is that the language was so confusing deliberately yeah. on the part of Republicans, excluding much of the language of the bill. That's the only way that this will be defeated. But I'm feeling that that's not going to happen tonight. And you make a really good point. And I'm going to come back to you on this, Basil. Because, let me play Glenn Youngkin, because the issue of abortion, Republicans caught the car. They're the dog that caught the yeah, car. Yeah. But they haven't figured out how to make themselves not look like they want to do the Handmaid's Tale, which let's just clear. Well, this, a lot of them want to do the Handmaid's right. Tale. Here's Glenn Youngkin. Essentially, he is trying to sell a national 15-week abortion ban on the basis of what happens in Virginia. Here's his closing argument. We've been completely straightforward and clear. I will back a bill to protect life at 15 weeks. I really feel that this is a moment for us to come together around reasonable limits where we can protect life at 15 weeks. As we entered this cycle, uh, I had pulled together leadership and said, I think we should progress a bill that protects life at 15 weeks. The candidates that are all running have all agreed this is the bill that they would progress. Is this a powerful message Democrats are missing out on? I mean, the fact that Glenn Youngkin is sort of slid in under the radar, not seeming as extremist, but he's the book, he book banned before right, DeSantis. So. And now right. he's like, hey, national abortion ban starting in Virginia. And Republicans were talking about what happens if Trump does, you know, goes by the wayside, gets arrested, imprisoned. This is this might be our guy coming forward. Maybe we can do a swap. Um, so, yeah, no, it, I, I do think to Michael's point earlier it's it's an opportunity for Democrats to really message this very strongly because you have also a speaker who wants to do everything that states are doing across oh, yeah. the country. Uh-huh. So we've got to be we've got to talk with a greater sense of urgency around this that I I, I do hear. But I'm concerned that a lot of parts of the party are not here, are not hearing. Uh, Michael, uh, let's go to uh, Mississippi real quick. 
the Brett Favre using money that was intended for the poor to build his daughter uh, a cool sports uh, addition for herself or whatever, for, for her volleyball career, um, does that end up hurting him enough that Elvis's uh, what nephew can win? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I, you know, how does that translate for folks? I, 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 to be honest, just stepping away from it and being this far, I, I don't think it will uh, really factor for a lot of those voters. Um, there hasn't been a lot of blowing up around that. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was a scandal. I think that's kind of, uh, Oh, there's blowing up about it though. My brother, they're blowing up about it. It's, it's hurt his popularity. It's made him very unpopular. Tate Reeves. Yeah. But the question is, how does that then translate into votes? Being a Donald Trump is unpopular, but national (laughs) polls have him beating Joe Biden. So, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to base, you know, my experience in politics, I'm not going to base how a campaign is going to turn out around who's unpopular. What I'm going to base it on is how Reeves and Presley are managing their ground game and how they're managing the vote and who they're turning out. Are they turning out voters who see Reeves as unpopular? Um, are they taking advantage of unpopul- his unpopularity among Republicans mm-hmm. um, and using that to their adva- advantage? So, you know, I think, again, smart tactics at this stage in, in this national election, because this is part of the national election, Absolutely. Joy. You know that. Absolutely. Yes. So smart tactics at this stage at every level is critically important. And those of us in the democracy space have got to get smarter and quicker yeah. and team up faster yeah. around these elections so that we are prepared for what's about to hit us when this game really begins afoot in January. I'm going to give you the last word on this, Connie, because Biden's unpopularity is actually kind of frightening Democrats now. I mean, he's not winning in most of these swing state polls. Is that something Democrats should be concerned about a year out, in your view? Well, you just answered it. It's a year out. And I want to say something else. Duncan, no Democrat thought he was a moderate. No Democrat ever thought Mike DeWine was a moderate. He had This is a national narrative that occurs too often. Mike DeWine had a few months during COVID, but I have covered this administration. I've covered him for years. I've covered state Republicans for two decades. There is not a moderate among them at this point. And we are talking about controlling women's bodies. And if anyone, I was listening to another network briefly this evening, suggesting that this election will be over and then everybody's going to be calm and forget about it. They are so underestimating the rage of women, not just the compassion we have for other women, but the rage we are feeling that here we are, here I am at age 66, telling men still that they have no business trying to control women's bodies. You have not begun to see what we are capable of in this presidential race. Yeah, I think I've seen some of the numbers out of Ohio that the percentage of people who are angry uh, about Roe v. Wade being overturned um, is something like 40 percent. And those who are uh, just dissatisfied is like 20. It's like seven in 10 are either angry or dissatisfied, but angry is the highest number. Connie Schultz, Michael Steele, Basil Smichael, thank you all very much. Steve will be back with us at 730 when polls do indeed close in Ohio. If you are still in line, stay in line and vote, 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 vote. But up next, the worst fears of Trump's attorneys become reality as he blurts out an incredibly damaging admission on the stand. Who would have thunk it? The latest from the courtroom when the readout continues. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. 
lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. When Donald Trump sat for his first deposition last year in New York Attorney General Letitia James's probe into the Trump Organization's business practices, he invoked the Fifth Amendment a lot. I mean, we're talking nearly 450 times. Perhaps it was a smart move, however, because it seems that anytime Trump speaks under oath, he just can't help but incriminate himself. It is who he is. Yesterday, Trump did not invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And considering that it is a civil trial, it would have been seen negatively by the judge. But perhaps he should have considered it. Because beyond the theatrics of the day from Trump, including attacking both Letitia James and Judge Arthur and Goron from the witness stand, Trump made a critical admission that is at the heart of the case. Trump admitted that the intent in providing the false financial statements with Trump's personal guarantee was to induce banks to loan him money. As the New Republic puts it, while it might not sound like much, the admission is key to the New York Attorney General's case, which hopes to prove that Trump deceived banks and insurers by massively overvaluing his net worth. Trump essentially admitted on the stand that these financial documents were produced with the express intent to induce lending. The Trump Organization was likely able to secure loans at far lower interest rates due to all the overinflated valuations. Last week, a banking expert testified that those favorable loan terms likely saved Trump and his company more than $168 million. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel, MSNBC legal analyst and co-host of the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast. Um, Andrew, you know, Donald Trump's admission on the stand, given the fact that Judge Ngoran has already found for Letitia James' office on the substantive questions, seems bizarre, a huge error. Is it just that he's got no self-control? <laughs> like, isn't this case over? Uh, yes. I mean, in terms of the outcome, I think the only issue is what are the kinds of remedies that uh, the judge is going to impose. And I sort of have two thoughts on that. One is, you know, Joy, very frequently witnesses who are not telling the truth may start off well, but as the day progresses, it sort of gets harder and harder to maintain focus on what the truth is and what you're supposed to be saying. And, you know, the, the worst admissions by Donald Trump all happened in the afternoon, ah. um, where, as he said, in the afternoon, he was like, yes, I agree. The intent of doing this was to induce them to loan me money. He was also asked, by the way, are, can you say and are you saying now that the financial statements are true and accurate? That should be a softball. Joy, if I asked you, did you ever like file things with a bank that are true and accurate? You'd be yeah. like, I don't even remember what they are. But yeah. of course I of did. Of course, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, he was like, essentially, his answer, I'm paraphrasing, was sort of, I'll get back to you. <laughs> 
I mean, like it's a softball and he couldn't just say, of course, that's the case. Um, and I think it's because he was thinking, well, I know they're not. So I don't actually want to lie about that yeah. and adhere to what he had said in the morning. Um, and I think the other part is his acting out and his behavior with respect to the judge, with respect mm-hmm. to the prosecutors in it, I do think is relevant in terms of the remedy that the judge has to impose. So one of the things the judge will be deciding is whether Donald Trump can continue to do business in the state of New York. Should he still be here? Should he still be banking here? Should he still be have access to customers in New York? And if you've got someone who's so unrepentant, who's so out of control, who so much doesn't care about the rule of law, it seems to me that the judge could easily weigh in his conduct here to to say, you know what, this is not the kind of person, um, a recidivist, who we want to have preying on people in New York. So I think he hurt himself both substantively and in terms of his behavior. Yeah. And, and, you know, and people, I think, too often try to assign sort of four-dimensional chess to Donald Trump's act actions when he's really just a 77-year-old man with no self-control, right? But I think but, but one, of the, one of the ways yeah. Rolling Stone was trying to sort of suss out why he was literally yelling at the judge yesterday. This is it. According to two sources familiar with the matter and another person briefed on Team Trump's legal strategies for to extent those exist, the former president and his lawyers are intentionally trying to provoke the judge into a nuclear level overreaction. According to three sources, several Trump attorneys and other key allies have advised him that the more the New York judge supposedly overreacts, including perhaps remanding Trump, the better their case for an appeal will be. What do you make of that if that is strategery? Well, I think the only person who so far has overreacted is Donald Trump. Um, I think there's a very good argument that the judge has underreacted. Um, when, he, when Donald Trump, for the second time, um, spoke about and denigrated the judge's law clerk, I was very much saying that if you impose only $10,000, you were sending almost a a sort of welcoming of it because you're dealing with somebody who smells out power and and that power dynamics. And I thought, if anything, Judge Ngoran was holding his fire uh, and actually trying not to react. And, And you should know, most judges are very aware that litigants who are losing try that tactic. They try and go to the judge. And I don't think he's falling for it. So I just don't think that strategy is going to work. And if anything, you know, attacking a law clerk, I don't think on appeal, you know, those judges, they have law clerks also. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's going to really work. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, and it, it might not be a tactic. He literally just might not have any self-control. Andrew Weissman. Yeah. Um, thank you. And still ahead. You're welcome. Cheers. We are moments away from polls closing in Ohio. Steve Kornacki. There he is. He's standing by at the big board where he lives with the latest. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Polls just closed in Ohio with voters deciding whether or not to enshrine abortion rights in the state's constitution and whether or not to legalize marijuana. Steve Kornacki is back at the big board with the latest. What have you got, Steve? Yeah, uh, we do have uh, in in Ohio, uh, the polls closing just about right now. And in fact, you see that right on the screen right there. Uh, And the NBC News characterization uh, of that issue one, which would put the right to an abortion in the state constitution uh, and allow for a a limit after fetal viability. The NBC News decision desk is saying it's too early to call, but that yes, is leading on that. That is the, uh, remember, Ohio is the one state we have an exit poll in from tonight. So we're going to look in a minute here for returns to start coming in from Ohio. But taking a look at the situation in the Kentucky governor's race, where now more than one third of the vote is in. You see the overall tally statewide. Bashir almost 10 points ahead of Daniel Cameron. I think a couple things are starting to stand out in terms of what we're looking at here. Um, One of them is just we're talking about when you get full results from counties, how is Bashir doing relative to how he did in 19? Because he barely won in 19. So is he at or above the levels he got in 2019? And we're starting to see counties that are getting close to being all in. Uh, we're starting to see a bit of a pattern here where he's running, for instance, in Bell County. He's running about two points above where he finished uh, in 2019. You know, small county. You know, with 95 percent in, there's about one precinct left there. You know, that is an improvement for him. Um, So we're seeing a lot of these counties. They're small rural counties. A lot of them are Republican counties. Uh, Here's a big one. Actually, Laurel County is this one of the uh, one of the largest plurality producing counties for Republicans in the state. More than 90 percent of the vote is in there right now. Cameron's winning it. But Andy Bashir only got 26 percent of the vote here in 2019. And with 91 percent in, he's at 31 and a half. Now, these are good signs for him. These are not huge shifts in huge counties in terms of population, but we're seeing a number of counties that come in like this. The other thing I think on a bigger scale that's encouraging for Bashir right now would be you take the second largest county in the state, Fayette. This is where Lexington University of Kentucky is, core Democratic county. But again, about 85 percent nearly of the vote is in right now. It's no surprise that Bashir is winning big, but he's sitting at basically 72 percent of the vote. He got 66 percent of the vote out of this county in 2019. And you take a look at some of the out, you know, the areas right around Fayette County, sort of the suburbs of Lexington. Look at Scott County. We got more than 60 percent of the vote in. And here's Bashir sitting at 57 percent. He got 49 percent of the vote here uh, last time around. So, you know, you look at where the state capital is, Franklin County, Frankfurt's here. Now, it's only a third of the vote. Bashir got 61 percent here in 19. He's sitting at 75 percent. That'll come down. But if there's a trend here where he's landing a couple points consistently above where he did in 2019, that's what he needs to do. That couple of big turnout from these core Democratic counties. Again, you see Jefferson, by far the biggest county in the state. The city of Louisville is here. All we've gotten so far pretty much is the early vote out of there. But again, Bashir, uh, you know, banking a big number from there and the votes to come will still be very Democratic. So that, that's a, another big opportunity for him. one of the other big counties of state, Warren, where Bowling Green is. We don't have any numbers from there yet. But that's a county that Bashir was able to win in 2019. So we'll see what the numbers look like there. And then again, these Cincinnati suburbs that we've been 
been talking about. Now, nearly 90 percent of the vote is in in Boone County. This is where Florence is. This is right outside Cincinnati. Again, these are pretty uh, large counties uh, as Kentucky goes in terms of population. Ninety percent in Cameron leading. No surprise there. But what did Bashir get in 2019 in this county? He got 41 percent of the vote. So with 90 percent in, he's running above that level. Go next door. Kenton County, only about a third of the vote in here. Again, this will come down. But Bashir did get 49 and a half percent of the vote here, won it by a whisker back in 2019. This is where Covington, Kentucky is. Keep an eye on that. And then Campbell, we've got more than 73 percent. We've got basically three uh, three quarters of the vote in in Campbell County. And there's Bashir sitting at nearly 60 percent of the vote. He got 51 and a half out of this county in 2019. So again, you figure it'll come down some with what's left, but these are all encouraging signs for Andy Bashir right now uh, in Kentucky. Again, just to reset the leaderboard there, 37% in right now. Um, again, we're seeing in most of these counties where we're getting more than 90% in, some of them are very small, yeah. but in most of them, it's small, right. but it's an improvement from 2019 uh, for Bashir. I have a He's- question for you, Steve. It, 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 uh, this is fascinating to me. I'm curious whether Bashir is overperforming in some of the red, more rural counties than he versus his uh, election four years ago. Well, that's yeah. I mean, a good example is right down here in, in Bell County. You know, 95 percent of the vote is in. I think there's one more precinct to come. He's running about two points above what he did in 2019. You know, again, this is relatively speak, relatively small county. Uh, but again, if you're running two points better, and we're seeing this in a number of counties like this, those will add up because what Cameron needs, Cameron needs to improve on what Bevan did, Matt Bevan, the former governor who Bashir defeated in 2019. And if Cameron's running well, but not quite as well in Bevan, and that pattern starts to develop, and I think we might be seeing that uh, in in these eastern Kentucky counties where we're seeing 90 percent or so of the vote in, Mm You know, again, he's got to overperform from what Bevan did in 2019. And so far, we're not really seeing that. Fascinating stuff. Steve Kornacki, we're not saying that you can never leave the big board. We're just saying don't leave it in the next, like, 12 hours or so. Because uh, And if you hear of anything, uh, holler. Let your producers know, and we'll come back. No, go ahead. Yeah, we, we just got our oh. first votes in in Ohio Let's do it. on issue one. This is that abortion referendum. Now, this is Franklin County. This is a core Democratic county, big Democratic area. And you see just three percent in 76 percent for yes. And then you got Stark County, about 20 percent in 64 percent for yes. Um, keep in mind, in Ohio, the early vote, the mail vote gets reported out first. So, it, again, in, if it's a Democrat-Republican election, you'd be seeing the high watermark for Democrats. You would expect that the initial batch of votes reported in every county in Ohio pretty much is going to be the best it gets for the yes side. But again, these are these are big numbers. Uh, if Franklin, oh, now, now we've jumped to 22 percent in in Franklin County, almost more than a fifth of the vote in, in Franklin County, 79 percent on yes. And I can just tell you, if we go back and look at this summer when they had that sort of test vote, where the opponents of issue one tried to raise the threshold to 60 percent for a constitutional amendment uh, that went down into defeat. Um, the number there in Franklin County was 75. And so this is again, this is sitting a little bit above that. 
You expect it to come down a little bit as the vote comes in, but it's still a core Democratic county. So you're looking at numbers here that look like they're probably going to fall somewhere close to where they fell this summer. And this summer, that initiative to raise the threshold, to make it harder to enact issue one, lost 57 to 43. So the yes side on issue one can, you know, has room to fade from their performance this summer. But initially, at least in Franklin County, big county here, may not be seeing that at all. It ain't fading. It ain't fading. Abortion is still a very, very, very hot issue. Uh, women and, and lot, not, not, not too many, not too few men are pretty angry about it. Um, Steve Kornacki, please stick around and wave your hands if anything else comes in and when more results come in. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. Much appreciated. Up next, a live update as Israel continues its relentless assault amid growing calls for a humanitarian ceasefire. We'll be right back. Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. More journalists have reportedly been killed over a four-week period than in any conflict in at least three decades. More United Nations aid workers have been killed than in any comparable period in the history of our organization. It has been one month since the violent surprise Hamas attack that Israel says killed 1,400 people and left 239 still hostage in the Gaza Strip. Israel has bombarded the densely populated area since the attack with a daily barrage of missiles and airstrikes. The UN Relief and Aids and Works Agency, which serves Palestinian refugees in Gaza, says 70 percent of the Gaza population has been displaced. And health officials there say more than 10,000 people have been killed. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on ABC News that Israel will have, quote, overall security responsibility for Gaza for, quote, an indefinite period after this war with Hamas ends. His comments offered the latest and clearest indication yet that Israel plans to reoccupy the territory that it turned over to ostensive Palestinian control in 2005, though Israel has continued to control access to Gaza from land and sea. Hamas won elections to govern the Strip in 2006, the last time there was an election there. Netanyahu also said in a briefing today that no gas or aid workers will enter Gaza until all of the Israeli hostages are released. Joining me now from Tel Aviv is NBC News correspondent Hala Garani. Uh, Hala, what is the situation on the ground in Gaza? And given the fact that the Israeli prime minister has said no aid workers, no oil, no nothing gets in, mm -hmm. are there aid workers still on the ground and there are, are they able to operate at all? Well, agencies are operating. You mentioned the U.N. Relief uh, and Works Agency, which is in charge of uh, refugees there and has been for decades, in fact. Uh, there are developments on the ground militarily. The uh, Israeli prime minister has announced that uh, the Israeli military is encircling Gaza and operating inside of the city, which means that perhaps this is really we are beginning this new chapter of uh, of this war, which is entering its second month, where Israeli soldiers are going, perhaps, 
shops, uh, tunnel to tunnel, door to door, uh, and building to building. Uh, the indefinite period about that you mentioned there, the Israeli prime minister saying that Israel will be in charge of the Gaza Strip security for an indefinite period. Now, he, he did say that, but what does that mean exactly? Does that mean that they will reoccupy Gaza in the way that they were occupying Gaza, say, 15 plus years ago? That's very unlikely. Could it mean that they will establish some sort of security buffer that will eat into the Gaza Strip where there will be no civilians? The United States has said time and again that it opposes the idea of a reoccupation of Gaza, certainly in the form that that occupation took uh, many years ago. The concern from the Palestinian side is if there is a security buffer, will Palestinian civilians who have been forced to leave their home south ever be able to return? Uh, as far as the humanitarian situation, you mentioned how dire it is, more than 10,000 people dead, according to the health ministry operated by uh, Hamas. And uh, there is, uh, there are reports that the ICRC and the Palestinian Red Crescent, that some humanitarian convoys have been hit on their way down south. And this is a complaint we've heard from humanitarian agencies time and again, that there is no safe place in Gaza. I should mention one small bright spot, Joy, and that is that the number of evac evacuations through Rafah into Egypt have increased today. I'm looking down here at the figures. At least 500 people, most dual nationals and foreign nationals, have been, have been able to leave the Gaza Strip, uh, as well as a handful of injured Gazans. But in those IDP, internally displaced camps, Joy, uh, there are uh, diseases that are starting, skin conditions, diarrhea, all sorts of problems, and, and people there just cannot make it to the hospitals who are overwhelmed with much, much graver concerns right now. Back to you. Um, Hala Garani, thank you. Please stay safe. Thank you for that uh, report. Much appreciated. Still ahead, hundreds of artists band together as activists demanding that President Biden push for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Three of those artists join me next. A quick update on the Kentucky governor's race. It's still too close to call, but Democrat Andy Bashir is leading. Steve Kornacki is standing by. And if there's any news on that front, we will bring it to you immediately. But first, over the weekend, tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets around the globe in London, Paris, Berlin, Rome, Chile, Greece, as well as in Washington, D.C., all demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. People of all races, religions, nationalities and professions have joined that call, including over 200 artists, actors and musicians who signed an open letter to President Biden, writing in part, we urge your administration, Congress, and all world leaders to honor all of the lives in the Holy Land and call for and facilitate a ceasefire without delay, an end to the bombing of Gaza and the safe release of hostages. We refuse to tell future generations the story of our silence, that we stood by and did nothing. As emergency relief, Chief Martin Griffiths told UN News, history is watching. Joining me now are actors Wallace Shawn and Cynthia Nixon and stand-up comedian Mo Amer. All are activists who signed on to this open letter calling on President Biden to demand a ceasefire. Thank you all for being here. It's such a pleasure um, to have you and in such, you know, awful circumstances. But I just want to go around the table and I want to start with you, Mo. Um, this is personal for you, obviously, because your family is there. They're in the West Bank. Just tell me how you're doing and how you what you want to see differently done by the administration. 
Um, first and foremost, I would love to see a ceasefire. I mean, the preservation of innocent civilian life is is the most important thing to all of us here today. And I also want to just acknowledge how absurd it is to even have to say it out loud uh, that innocent killing of people is wrong. And you have to say this out loud. This is where we've reached. This is the point that we've gotten to uh, as a people where we it's almost controversial. Yeah, it is controversial to just ask for simply a ceasefire, knowing that so many innocent civilians are dying. How is and, your family doing? Yeah. And the West Bank is a day to day thing. I mean, there is uh, a tremendous amount of settler vi- violence coming from the uh, coming from the illegal occupation that's there uh, from the different settlements that are there. And uh, every day is a, it's a it's a it's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, I'm constantly reaching out to see if they're okay, how they're doing. Do they have enough food, do they have enough water? Uh, clearly, the situation is much different there uh, than it is in Gaza, where they don't have any water, don't have any food, uh, don't have any electricity, which is a war crime, but it still continues to happen, which is absolutely mind-blowing. I don't know. This just needs to stop. It just absolutely needs to stop. Yeah. And Cynthia, I mean, there's been a lot of tension in Hollywood, um, you know, about whether people say something, don't say something and what you say. And, and I think it's very emotional, I think, on all around, on all sides. What made you decide to sign on to this letter and what do you want to see done differently? Well, absolutely. I think we're all here because we, we want to cease fire. And I, I will just tell you, you know, I have three children. Two of them are Jewish. And I woke up on the morning of October 7th and I heard what had happened. And I burst into tears uh, because I was so devastated about what had happened. Uh, the 1,400 Israelis that had been killed, the 200 plus people who had been Israelis who had been taken hostage. But I also was so upset because I knew about the violence to come. And um, I have to say, you know, my oldest child... Um, is very centered in his Jewish identity and has is really the person in our family who is pulling all of us and saying we 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 have to shout from yeah. the from the rooftops and we have to do um, everything to to stop this to, yeah. to to call for a ceasefire and the safe return of the hostages and humanitarian aid in Gaza where it is so desperately needed. And Wallace, you know, you, you as a Jewish American yourself, why do you think it is so hard for people to hold both of those two ideas? At the same time, that it is wrong to kill civilians, no matter whether they are, you know, Arab or Muslim or Jewish, but that also a ceasefire is not somehow a su- somehow supporting Hamas. Well, I think a lot of uh, Jewish Americans are uh, schooled in the idea that the uh, murder of the Jews in Europe during the Second World War taught the lesson that uh, Jews must protect themselves and that there are no rules to guide them and to limit them or to restrain them. They must do anything they, they feel they need to do to protect themselves. I am more drawn to the idea that we need to all protect ourselves against each other and against the somewhat horrible... Uh, side of our own nature, which can be called upon at any time. So I think uh, many of the people, particularly, as you say, in Hollywood, uh, are uh, don't understand. People have asked me, why 
are you protesting against killing people in Gaza, but you didn't protest the the massacre of Israelis in on October the 7th. And the reason is I'm an American and I'm paying taxes to the American government. I, I don't pay taxes to Hamas and they don't care what I think. But the American government is supposed to care if yeah. we're theoretically a democracy. Indeed. And I wonder, have you all heard from the White House? Have you heard from the White House? I have not. I have not heard from the White House. <laughs> no response? No, no, no response. Nobody's uh, hit me up. Uh, <laughs> I would love it if they would. Uh, I would love to really talk about the what's happening to Palestinians the last 75 years. I mean, the fact that this is even uh, a morsel of a surprise is absolutely uh, uh just upsetting. It, this has been going on for quite some time. I don't want to see any innocent life, any more innocent life taken. It's absolutely absurd that we have to continue to have this conversation. Uh, I feel like it's a it's a cycle that they want us to be stuck in, yeah. uh, to be against each other, to finger point against each other. But that's not what the reality is here. Uh, I come from a Muslim Palestinian background. I'm American. Uh, I'm a product of statelessness and uh, being a refugee to America. Uh, I'm living the American dream. I'm an extremely privileged refugee that had a dream and was able to accomplish it. The children in Gaza don't have this chance. They are completely blocked in. Uh, hospitals being bombed, uh, a religious, uh, you know, from a church being bombed. To, I mean, like, there's not even a, a location that I can think of that hasn't been hit. Yeah. Uh, white phosphorus is being used, which is illegal. It's an absolute war crime. I don't want to see any more people die. Yeah. I don't want to see any more people. They're writing their names on, on their children's babies. And yeah. Imagine the scenario where you have to do this. They're separating their families to preserve their own lineage. Yeah. I mean, that is insane to think about and for us to to come together as artists we we'd rather be you know working and doing our thing sure. and focusing on that but it's impossible to sit still why something as egregious as this is happening. Well, I appreciate the fact that you all came together, um, the artists that all came together across yeah. different religions. Uh, and I think that's important and ethnicities and everyone coming together because it is a message that should not be controversial. Peace is not controversial. Absolutely. It's actually a good thing. Um, thank you, Wallace Shawn, Cynthia Nixon, Mo Amer. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And that is tonight's readout. The polls are about to close in Mississippi, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Stay with MSNBC throughout the night as results come in from all of the key races. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.